on the topic of complementarianism. And we're going to dive into chapter one of Kevin DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church. And this is the portion of the book that DeYoung entitles Biblical Exploration, where he goes through the biblical data regarding men and women and their, and their roles. This is the, the biggest portion of the book. So over the next six weeks, including this one, we're going to engage with all of this wonderful biblical data. And this morning we'll be examining Genesis 1 through 3. And we'll be looking at what these first chapters in the Bible have to say about man and woman. And DeYoung makes this interesting point that I find particularly helpful. And that is, we can sometimes be, be frustrated or confused why the creation account really doesn't say more about creation, right? There's only two chapters to account for the creation of the entire cosmos. We may want to know a host of things that just aren't in the text, like where exactly the garden was, what did it look like, how old did Adam appear to be after the creation. All of these interesting points. But what the lack of detail in these areas highlight is actually just how much detail the Lord does provide for us regarding the creation of man and woman. By far, humanity is the central focus of the creation narrative, and we get a wealth of information on the relationship between man and woman in the first three chapters of Genesis. And I think this, this, this makes sense. It should make sense to us. Because as we'll see, man and woman are the crown, the crown jewel of God's creation. We, humanity, are unique amongst the rest of creation. And so, given that the first chapters of Genesis contain so much information on, on man and woman and their distinct roles, it's key that we get a good grasp of what's being taught here. Because in a real sense, the rest of the biblical authors assume what we see in the created order, what we see the, in these chapters as the as the paradigm for male and female relations. So this really is the, the, the foundation, the, the key text. Ray Ortland, who wrote the chapter on, on Genesis 1 through 3 in the Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood book, the one edited by Piper and Grudem that I showed you last week. Um, Ortland, he writes about the importance of this text very well. He says, as Genesis 1 through 3 go, so goes the whole biblical debate. One way or the other, all the additional biblical texts on manhood and womanhood must be interpreted consistently with these chapters. They lay the very foundation of biblical manhood and womanhood. I think that is exactly right. And DeYoung points out an important reality for us about this truth. And that is when we come to see any teaching or commands about men and women in the rest of Scripture, specifically in their distinct roles, we need to know that they aren't just made up by God arbitrarily. Right? These distinct roles, male headship in the home and the church, and females being a, a helpmate for the man in marriage and the church, are rooted in how God created the world. These, these different roles then aren't optional, and they aren't, they're, they're actually a part of how God designed men and women to relate to each other from the beginning with complementary roles. So all that to say, these chapters are massively important, extremely important for our study on complementarianism because they're the very foundation for every other teaching. So any questions before we dive into the content of the chapter or comments? Okay. So my thesis for the day is really simple. It's this. God instituted both male-female equality and male headship at creation. 
God instituted both male-female equality and male headship at creation. And thus, both of these truths are, are permanent and beneficial aspects of human existence. Both of those truths, male and female equality and male headship, are permanent and beneficial aspects of human existence. And for a definition of headship that I'm going to be using, I'm going to use the one found in the, in the Ray Ortland text. I think this is helpful. So when I say headship today, this is what I mean. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. I'll say that again. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Now, I want to be clear. There's a common critique that, that male headship is not taught in the creation account because it never literally appears in the text, as in those words aren't there. And it is true that neither of these truths, male and female equality and male leadership, are spoken about in that exact language or in those exact terms. But that doesn't mean that they're not there. That's just a bad way to, to read the Bible. As we'll see, I think it's pretty clear that both of these truths are found in Genesis 1 through 3, both explicitly and implicitly. And the young gives what I think are 15 helpful observations about manhood and womanhood from Genesis 1 through 3 that, that prove these two truths. And we don't have time to go through them all, all 15, but I'm going to highlight what I find to be the most important for this study, and hopefully we will finish on time. We will finish on time, not hopefully. So first, the first observation, man and woman were both created in the image of God. Man and woman were both created in the image of God. We see this clearly in Genesis 1.27. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Male and female he created them. So men and women are, are distinct from the rest of creation in that they both are created in the image of God and in God's likeness. It's, we're not going to uh, get into exactly what, what the image of God is, as there's much debate about that in the church, but for our purposes, all we need to know for this study is that both man and woman are, are made in God's image and in His likeness. It's not exclusive to one sex. And this is massive because it informs us that women are not inferior in any way to men, or men inferior to women, right? Women are, and men are equal in value, equal in, in dignity. And de Young helpfully argues that women are not inferior or the, or the lesser creature than man, which has sometimes been taught in Christian circles and Christian churches. But I think it's, it's, it's completely not true because they both have the same image. Maleness, then, is not the higher form of being than femaleness. And I'm, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because there's really, there's not much debate. Everyone agrees on this point in the complementarian versus egalitarian debate. Um, I think sometimes, obviously, complementarians get treated unfairly, in my opinion, as some would say, that we don't actually believe in female equality because we believe in a distinction of roles between man and woman. But more on that later. For now, we must see that as a result of both male and female being made in God's image, both male and female are equal spiritual beings before God. Equal spiritual beings before God. Second point from De Young. De Young's second point. God gave both man and woman joint rule over creation. 
This is a really simple point and clear from the text uh, in Genesis 1.28. Notice the plural pronouns. God blessed them, and God told them to have dominion over every living thing. So the command of God to, to man to rule over his creation was given to both male and female. In other words, God authorizes male and female together to carry out their mission to rule creation. The implication is that male and female are equal in the sense that they both have a God-given task to rule and to, and to subdue creation, to, to have dominion. But they don't rule in the same way. They don't have, they're not charged with the same tasks. They don't have the same roles, which leads to de Young's next point, which is that within this God-given rule that God gives humanity, man and woman were given different tasks. Man and woman were given different tasks and created in different realms. What de Young means here is that man, man alone was given the charge in Genesis 2.15 to work and keep the garden. The man is charged in ruling God's creation with working the land and keeping it. The word for keep in Hebrew is shamar. It, it, it denotes the idea also of, of guarding and, and protecting. So Adam is then charged to work, to work in the garden and to protect the garden, to guard the garden. And notice here the first echoes of the call of every husband to his wife, the to provide for and protect the woman, the wife God gives him. And I think we can see that the woman, Eve, is to flourish under Adam's protection in the garden. Or that is to say that the man's protection of the garden is not viewed by the narrative of the, of the story as demeaning to the woman in any way. It is a benefit to her. It is, it is good for the woman. De Young goes on to say that, that unlike the woman who was made outside the garden, the man was, or hold on, De Young goes on to say that unlike the man who was made outside the garden, the woman was created inside the garden, which he argues means that the, the woman has a unique cultivating relationship with the garden. That is to say that the woman is to cultivate or nurture aspects of the garden. So yes, both man and woman were charged with the command and task to rule God's creation, but they do so in asymmetrical ways, or, or, or not in, in the same way, in distinct ways. The man is charged with working and protecting the garden, which de Young argues comes from being endowed with greater physical strength than the woman. And the woman, Eve, having the ability and capacity to create and cultivate new life, has the unique job of filling the earth with, with offspring and cultivating life in the garden. So same rule, same dominion, with a different task or, or different complementary roles. Ortland, in, in his commentary on this section, helpfully points out that we can learn from this distinction between the man and the woman here is that it is God, it is God in his created design who wants men to be men and women to be women. And he has the authority, God has the authority to, to teach us the meaning of each. That, that our distinct sexual identity defines who we are. Uh, and, and why we are here and how God calls us to serve him in important ways. Another way to say what Ortland is arguing is that you being a man or, or you being a woman is extremely important. It's an important aspect of your identity, so much so that God intentionally designed man and woman to be different, with different roles, with different tasks, different responsibilities from the beginning from his created design. And it is only through knowing and embracing these differences that we can flourish, that we can live lives pleasing to him in God's design.
No, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but any questions so far? Comments? Again, y'all can just stop me at any time. Yeah, the, I, I think that's the key term, spiritual value, right? We, we, I can't remember the verse in the New Testament, um, but both men and women um, are seeking to attain glory, heaven, right relationship with God. But there's no distinction between um, rank, between man and woman, and the status before God. Um, Yeah, I think it'll be helpful if we keep going, because I'm going to touch on some of this, because there is a tension, but I'm, I'm going to argue the tension is mainly because we live in a modern culture that doesn't... Un- yeah. I'm not sure it's that quite that simple, but we'll see if you like it here in a moment. Um, any other comments, questions? You had a second question I don't think I answered, but you, I can't remember. Um, okay, where were we? DeYoung's next point, I forgot the number. Three, maybe, three. Um, the man was given the priest-like task of maintaining holiness in the garden. The man was given the priest-like task of maintaining the holiness of the garden. So what, I've, what I haven't mentioned so far is that um, a fair amount of theologians across the denominational spectrum believe we have in these first chapters of Genesis a covenant between God and man. Different traditions describe this covenant in different ways. And one thing a biblical covenant has, or even what makes something a covenant, is that a covenant has demands or, or commands, obligations for a party to fill, actions one party must complete as a part of the covenant agreement. And we see the demands of the God's covenant with Adam, or what is sometimes called the, the covenant with creation in Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the demand of the covenant, or or the command that Adam had to keep, was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the result of failing to to keep the demands of the covenant, or, or breaking the command, is that Adam would would die. Now DeYoung highlights how it is the man alone who is given the command from God. So in in Adam's working and keeping or protecting the garden, the man was responsible for establishing God's command on the earth and guarding God's moral boundaries. In other words, the man, Adam, was to be a type of priestly figure. Old Testament priests, remember, mediated or stood between the presence of God and the sanctuary of the tabernacle or temple in place of the regular Israelite by offering sacrifices to atone for the people's sins. In the garden, Adam serves as a type of priest who who stands between the presence of God and creation in the sanctuary of the garden. This is complex and goes beyond the, the purposes of the study, but if you're interested in this idea, um, G.K. Beale has a very helpful article that I can, I can send you if you just tell me if you're interested. Um, but DeYoung's point is just to say that it was the man's responsibility to have this priestly role in the garden, not Eve's. And, and his obedience to the command of God would mean blessing, and his disobedience would mean death. The, the, the full responsibility then is on Adam, which I think pretty explicitly points to his, his headship, his leadership in the garden. DeYoung's next point, next observation is 
that the man was created before the woman. The man was created before the woman. This might be the most obvious one. Um, this really is important in the rest of Scripture, though, as this is the ground or the reason why Paul prohibits women from teaching men in the church in 1 Timothy 2. Paul says it's because Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now, on the surface, this seems, this may seem pretty unfair. But as DeYoung points out, this, this idea of the man being created first does not mean first equals best. Or, or the belief that because the man was made first, he was inherently better in some capacity or, or, or something like this. That's not what is happening. DeYoung goes on to quip, and I thought this was pretty funny, that if first equals best was Moses' intention what he intended to mean, then we would have to consider how God made all the animals before humanity and man. So a cockroach or, or a turtle would in that sense be better than man because they were made first. Obviously, that's not true. So what's going on with man being created before the woman? And why does it matter? I think DeYoung argues very well, and I think this is probably the best part of the chapter, the best treatment I've seen on this issue but DeYoung argues that the, the order matters because it indicates Adam's position in the creation narrative as protector and, and, or priest of the garden, and Eve's position as coming under the man's protection from man's very side to be his helper or, or to support him, to support the man. In other words, the man being made first has nothing to do with him being superior or having a better intellect, or better um, ability, any innate reason. I'm sure all the wives can attest to that. Um, the reason for the man being made first, then, must be tied to the truth that the man in the created order is the head of the woman, is the leader of the woman, who is charged with a dis distinct task to rule the creation through the working and the, and the protecting of the garden. And the woman is created to help the man with that task, which is DeYoung's next point. The woman, the woman was given as a helper to the man. The woman was given as a helper to the man. We can see this pretty clearly from Genesis 2, verses 18 through 20. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him or suitable for him. Now, this idea of the woman being the helpmate to man is probably where the greatest controversy in this passage lies. But I submit to you that that any discomfort. Or, or hesitation, or even disgust that, that at saying the woman was created as a helper or a supporter to the man is mainly a modern phenomenon. And that is because we live in a culture and society that I think values autonomy over, over everything, meaning independence is the highest virtue of the day. So, Eve's created design as being a helper to the man is viewed as less than because her, her equality should lead her to complete independence from man. Or another way to say this is to our modern ears, helper is viewed as negative because it implies an, an inherent dependence on the man, which our culture finds bad. That Our culture views that as negative. Now we're going to see in a minute 
that the woman is dependent on the man, but so is the man dependent on the woman. There is a, a interdependence here. De Young also helpfully points out that the term in Hebrew for, for helper, which is ezer, ezer is never a demeaning term in Hebrew. It is a functional term, and God has even attributed this term as, the, as sometimes the helper of Israel. So one example of this is in Psalm 33, verse 20, where the psalmist writes that God is our helper, our help and shield. It's, it's the, the same word used here in Genesis 2. God is a helper to his people. So, of course, if this term is used positively towards God, then it would never be used by Moses in, in Genesis as a demeaning term towards women. Now, many feminist scholars argue that the term inherently denotes inferiority. It's, it's inherent to the, to the word. But I would just say it just doesn't imply that at all in the, in the original context. Or even when the term is used in the rest of Scripture, it, it never has a connotation of demeaning value. It is a distinguished role, something to be praised. And in, in a similar way that God is described as a helper to Israel, the role of the woman in the create, created order is to be a helper to the man. And in particular, in the context of Genesis 2, to be a helpmate to her husband. But this is more clear evidence de Young is giving in this chapter, more clear evidence for male headship, male leadership in the created order. And by created order, I mean before the fall into sin, before Genesis 3. Now, de Young goes on to say that we should be careful not to interpret what is happening here in Genesis 2 as, as Adam's aloneness, or as being lonely, or, and, and, the, and the woman is given to comfort him and give him the man com companionship. Right? Clearly, this, this does happen when, when Eve is made. Adam is ha happy about it. He's happy about having a woman in the garden, and he does enjoy the company, especially of a female rather than a male. But de Young's point is that we can't divorce the term helper from the mandate that was given to both the man and the woman to rule the creation, to, to have dominion over the earth. De Young's point is that it was not good for man to be alone, ultimately because man can't fulfill the cultural mandate by himself. He can't be fruitful and multiply without the woman. So we see in the term helper, then, the order of complementarity of male and female in creation. Another man could have given Adam company. Another man could have helped him work the ground. This would have benefited Adam, but no man would be a helper suitable to him or fit for him because another man couldn't be fruitful and multiply. It's an impossibility. You see how man and woman complement each other here in the task of ruling the creation, in, in their task of dominion. Both are essential. Man and woman, both are essential. Both are necessary. De Young writes, helpfully, he says, If mankind is to have dominion over the earth, there must be a man to work the garden and a woman to be his helpmate. Both are essential in the task. So any questions on helper comments? All right. DeYoung's seventh observation is that the man alone the man alone was given the task of naming every living creature. So we see in the narrative that God gives the task of naming every living creature before the creation of Eve. This shows Adam's dominion and rule of the creation, but it also highlights his, his leadership role in the relationship with the woman. He even names the woman, 
which many scholars believe this is the clearest indication of his leadership in the relationship or his headship in the relationship. This act of naming the animals and the woman shows how the man has an authority over the creation and over the woman, and this is a, a good part of God's design, a, a, a very good part. Now, I think this is a good place to make a small detour. A common objection that you will hear from egalitarians and, and Christian feminists is the claim that before the fall, before Genesis 3, there was no explicit mention of male headship, as I previously stated, between the man and the woman. And so they claim male headship was actually instituted after the fall into sin as a punishment for the woman, as, as, as an implication of the curse. And we're going go, to look at the curse in a moment and its effects on male-female relations. But, but these, these scholars, they then claim that with the coming of Jesus and his death, his, his resurrection, his ascension, and his restoration of all things, he has restored full equality to male-female relations, and women are, are no longer under the headship of their husbands or under the headship of their, their, their elders in the church. Because the, the leadership... The headship was instituted by God after the fall. You see the logic of their argument? So a part of Jesus making all things right for the egalitarian is reversing the supposed aspect of the curse and restoring equality of role, equality of, of task to females. Now I just want us to think about this, just consider this. Because so far in De Young's chapter and, and our study, we haven't, we haven't gotten to Genesis 3. We haven't gotten in the fall into sin and the curse that directly affects the man and the woman. But I think it's, it's abundantly clear that Adam has a distinct leadership role in the creation before the fall into sin. Therefore, this, this particular egalitarian argument, I think, holds very little weight um, because the man's headship, his leadership role, was given before sin entered the picture. It existed in paradise, in the garden, which we can conclude then it is good. It's very good. And it should be applied to areas of our life. And that is exactly how the, the other biblical authors view this. The later biblical authors, this is exactly how they view the created order. That the created order is good, and should be paradigmatic for our lives today. Should be the paradigm with how we view our, li our lives today. Okay, back to De Young's observations. Man and woman, I'm totally lost on the number. I think we might be on seven or eight. Man and woman were created in different ways. Man and woman were created in different ways. So we know from the narrative that the man was created from the dust, the dust. Man was created from the dust, from the ground, and the woman was created from the man. God put Adam in a deep sleep and formed the woman out of his very body. And DeYoung makes the point that I think is right and helpful that the way each, which, the way each man, the man and the woman was created sheds light on each of their roles and their tasks. He argues that it shouldn't surprise us based on how they were created that the man is tasked with, with tending to the health and the vitality of the ground and, and keeping the garden, protecting the garden from which he came. While the woman is tasked with helping the man from whom she came. Do you see the connection he's making? How they were made relates to the task, to the role they have in the cultural mandate or in their task to rule the creation as image bearers of God. De Young writes, he says, the way in which each was created suggests the special work they will do in the wider world. 
the man in the establishment of the external world of industry, and the woman in the nurture of the inner world of the family that will come from her as helpmate. I find this to be a, a pretty interesting argument, and it's actually the first time I've heard this, this type of argument. And I find, it, I find it pretty convincing that the, the manner in which the Lord God created the man and woman differently contained, the, the way he did that contains meaning for us. And in a sense, we should expect no different from an intelligent, all-knowing God to have meaning in and how he, he creates his creatures. It's a beautiful design with, with complex meaning. De Young's next point of observation. The names man and woman, the names man and woman, suggest interdependence. Suggest interdependence. In Genesis 2.23, Adam says, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew word for man is ish. Ish. Um, and the Hebrew word from, for woman is isha. Isha. And so DeYoung points out that providentially our English language keeps this connection for us that is there in the original language. So we have man and woman, woman. DeYoung makes the point that even in the names of man and woman, we see an irreversible connection. Woman came from the man, and the man needs the woman to fulfill the, the mandate, to fulfill the task. There's an interdependence between the man and the woman that, that goes so deep that it's even in the God-given name for each, for both male and female. Point 10, which might, this actually is probably point 12 in, in De Young's chapter. And that is, the two came from one flesh and became one flesh or become one flesh. The two came from one flesh and become one flesh. So De Young finally gets to, here in this chapter, to the marriage and the, the creation account. And so let's just read this here. It's going to be Genesis 2, through 25. It says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. De Young points out that it's, it's quite striking that, that Eve came from Adam, Woman came, the woman came from the man. In other words, she was from the, the same substance as the man, unlike any other creature. That is why we see, that's why when Adam sees the woman, he exclaims with this, this beautiful poem in verse 23, because the woman was like him. He found a companion that is suitable for him. See, so there's a complementary complementarity that is foundational to the institution of marriage, which this is the institution of marriage, the first marriage, right here in verses 22 through 24. In verse 24, the Lord declares that the man will, will hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in a sense, there's a reunion taking place. The woman was formed from the man's flesh, and in the covenant of marriage, they become one flesh again. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that they're, they're the, the same person, or that she just becomes Adam. That would be very bizarre. Um, it means that they hold all things in common and have a, a total devotion and a, a unique commitment to each other, which is illustrated in verse 25 as them being naked and not ashamed. They held everything in common, even the most vulnerable parts of them. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And what de Young points out is that the, the complementarity of male and female is fundamental to this beauty. It's essential to this design. Male and female is fundamental to marriage. 
So listen, we know this, but it, it needs to be said over and over again. A biblical marriage can only be, be between one man and one woman. Period. That is the, the only pairing that constitutes a marriage in God's design. And again, that is not because of merely some arbitrary rule. It is in the created design of God's world. The woman is created as a, as a helpmate for the man and created from the man's flesh to then being united in a one flesh union with the man, coming under his headship, coming under his protection. This is the foundation for every marriage to ever happen and for every marriage that will, that will happen. Again, it's a, it's a beautiful design. De Young's next observation. Adam is reckoned as the head and representative of the couple. Adam is reckoned as the head and representative of the couple. We see this most, most clearly in something we already talked about. Adam alone is given the initial command regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in the covenant between God and man, he goes to Adam, the man, to give him the command alone. And notice that when Eve gets tempted in Genesis 3 by the serpent, and she commits the initial sin, who does God go to first? Adam. God first goes to Adam and asks, where are you? I think this strongly implies that Adam was the designated leader of the couple. The head of the relationship. De Young speaks of Adam being the, the representative head. The point here is that, is that it is the man, Adam, that is the clear leader of the marriage relationship. He has the, the ultimate responsibility of leading his wife to glorify God with their actions. And he failed in that in Genesis 3. Because Eve was deceived in sin. And of course, as the narrative progresses, we see that God punishes the man and the woman differently for their sinful disobedience. And this leads to, to the last two observations from de Young. That the man and the woman, the man and the woman experience the curse in different ways, each in their fundamental area of responsibility. The man and the woman experience the curse in different ways each in, a, in their fundamental area of responsibility. So after the fall, this great, beautiful, complementary design between man and woman that we've been studying this morning, that this, this beautiful picture becomes warped. Even in the sinful act, we see the abandonment of each of their responsibilities, of their roles. Eve acts independently from the Adam, and is deceived into sin, and Adam abandons his responsibility as leader of his wife and does not do, he, he, he fails in his job of protecting the garden. Right? He should have destroyed the serpent. He should have kicked out the serpent. Uh, my daughter Eleanor this week said, I said, what would you have done to the serpent? And she's like, I would have squished his head and ripped out his eyes. It's like, whoa, that's right. <laughs> Um, but that's what Adam should have done. He should have kicked him out of the garden. But he didn't. Right? He failed. He failed in his role and his responsibility. He didn't do anything to stop Eve from sinning. And then he even followed her into the sin, as verse 6 of chapter 3 describes. Adam then blamed God for even giving him Eve in the first place. So Adam was a complete coward in this moment. And he abdicated his role as a leader and protector of his wife. De Young writes helpfully on this that, that Adam's sin was not only in disobeying God's command, but also in throwing off his responsibility as familial head, playing the coward and following his wife's influence instead of God's word. So this is strong language, but I think it's, it's entirely true of what we see in Genesis 3. So the man and the woman then are, are punished for their, for their disobedience is what is striking. 
is that both of their punishments are tied to their distinct role in, in ruling the creation. So subduing the earth for the man, working the land, working the ground, his unique calling is cursed. From now on, work will be toilsome and difficult. He shall live by the sweat of his brow. In other words, this is going to be hard living. Work is going to be difficult. For the woman, her unique domain, which remember is childbearing, being fruitful and multiplying, this is now affected by the curse. From that point forward, birth would be accompanied by, by pain and suffering. Men and women are, are subjected to frustration in their unique roles of responsibility, in their, their, their spheres of responsibility. And DeYoung's final observation is the relational wholeness that was experienced by man and woman in the created design, the relational wholeness between the man and the woman has been ruptured by the curse. Has been ruptured by the curse. So another terrible effect of the curse by God on sin is that it has ruptured the complementary roles in God's beautiful created design. So we see in Genesis 3.16 that for the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That word desire literally means mastery. So her, her desire will be to, to rule or, or be the, the master of her husband. But the man will rule over you. So now again, many egalitarians and feminists will point to this and say, see, look, it says rule. See, it, it was the result of the curse that female subordination entered the world in the marriage. But as we've seen so far, that it's I don't think that's the case at all. Male headship has been all over the place in the first two chapters of Genesis. So I think we should ask the question, what does this word rule mean here in verse 16? If it doesn't mean male headship or male leadership, which I don't think it does. I think the young is right when he says it represents this word rule. It represents a harsh exploitative subjugation. So no longer will the husband's rule of his wife be loving or, or sacrificial fundamentally, but his rule will be wicked. So whenever we see husbands that are domineering or abusive towards their wives, we know that it's not reflecting God's created design, his original design. It's a perversion of it. It is a result of sin, and it is wicked. So as a result of the curse, the marriage relationship has been shattered in some ways. It was supposed to be marked by mutually beneficial headship and helping, and now it is characterized by sinful rebellion and wicked domineering ruling. De Young ends this section with a powerful line. He says, God design sexual difference for one another, sin takes sexual difference and makes it opposed to one another. God designed sexual difference for one another, and sin takes sexual difference and makes it opposed to one another. So as a result of sin, the, the beautiful complementarity that, that we've seen, the complementary design in the created order is now flipped and is a point of great hostility between men and women throughout the generations, even till today. And we still clearly see the effects of the curse in the, the relationship between men and women today. So any questions on those last observations? Any comments? So Genesis 1 through 3, notice there wasn't very much concrete given here on explicit commands for manhood or womanhood, right? But, but what we see is what de Young calls divine patterns of the created order, divine patterns of the created order that, that shape 
how later biblical authors understand manhood and womanhood. And the callings and roles and responsibilities that Adam and Eve have. Those, those callings, the, the roles and responsibilities of Adam and Eve have a unique application to marriage relationships. But as DeYoung points out, the lessons found here aren't just for married couples. He writes, the opening chapters of the Bible establish the shape of sexual differentiation and complementarity that will be lived out, applied, and safeguarded in the rest of Scripture. So these truths, he's saying these truths in these earliest chapters of Genesis are our foundation, like I said in the introduction, are our foundation for a biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood. And so the next time we meet, next week, Lord willing, um, we're going to look, start looking at the rest of the biblical data. And we're going to go over pretty much a, an, a, a, a broad observation of the entire Old Testament and the Gospels to see what we can learn about manhood and womanhood from, from those patterns and those authors as they offer. But what I want us to see, what I want us to end with, is that here in Genesis 1-3, through you can read it this week, read it, pray over it. This is the foundation. This is the fundamental to our understanding of manhood and womanhood. And it should be the, the paradigm through which we look at our relationships with each other as men and women. So any questions or, or comments as we close? Y'all are quiet today. Oh, no, here we go. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. And his clearly his his design from creation, which is clear to us in Genesis one through three. Well, I don't know who all of us is talking about Eve. I didn't talk about Eve since today. So, <laughs> but I think because it's the most. I mean, I don't. I haven't thought about this, but. In the narrative, she is the one who is doing the sin. In our under, right, in our understanding, then she bears primary responsibility for her individual actions. Um, I think I, I I agree with you. You sound, you sound like Adam's lawyer. <laughs> More like Eve's lawyer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Robbie, you were going to say something? Yeah, I just, an observation. In the last few covenants, you can't go to I think, yeah, that's exactly right. I think you've got it. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. Well, actually, we'll see you in 15 minutes for our worship service. So, y'all are dismissed. <laughs>